Is that on now? Okay, good. And I understand that. I want to be sympathetic. I mean, think about it. Oh, we went to church today. What were they doing? Singing about problems and how they're thankful for their problems. It's well with my soul. Really? Then what do they sing? About blood. People are nuts. Well, but, but think about it. The Bible says, for this reason, the world does not know us. See, it's not normal to sing and thank God for problems. And it's not normal to sing about the blood of Jesus. It's supernatural. And so I, I certainly understand why some of you may be gone. seems a little weird, right? And it is a little weird. The Bible says that. It says people who don't have the spirit of God, spiritual things are foolishness to them. They can't understand them. But I want you to know that the idea of singing about the blood and praising God for your problems, if you don't understand that now, one day you will understand. Because the Bible says that when we leave this world, those who have put their trust in Christ and become Christ followers will sing in his presence. You are worthy because you shed your blood for us and you purchased us to God. So we're going to praise God in heaven. But those of you who don't get it in this life, which just breaks my heart to think about that, you'll still understand because one day the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But the last words that you would hear from him are depart from me into everlasting fire. And that's not God's will. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But the gospel message is an invitation to come to Jesus, as strange as that might seem, and to be forgiven of your sins through his shed blood. And so this morning I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And if you're visiting or just getting started, we're, we're studying our way through the book of Romans. So, uh, so many people, when they first visit a church like this, and it's not unique only to our church, but to many churches, much like the one I grew up in, the idea of learning from the Bible was just so new, like, wow, I actually learned something. So we invite you to take this Bible. You can keep it, read it with your family, talk about it, and certainly put it into practice in your life. Believe it. Now, we're in the middle of Romans 8, so if you're, if you're just starting with us, you're like in the middle of the movie. Who's that? What's that? Why is this? So let me just give you the big picture. Romans 1 through 4 is, is talking about the heart of the gospel, how to get right with God. Although millions of people in America and churches are telling you, you just be good, just do the sacraments, or, or try your best, or keep God's commandments. That's not what the Bible says. You don't get right with God by good works. You get right with God through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that he finished the payment for our sins. And we, we, we repent and we believe in him. And the Bible says when you do, you're justified. But that's not the whole message of salvation. The message of the gospel is not just for the past, like, oh, my sins are forgiven. It's for the present, because once you're justified before God, it begins the process of what the Bible calls becoming sanctified. We're being changed into the image of Jesus. But there's a bright future as well, and the Bible calls that being glorified. And so we're sort of in the midst of the story, because if you're a Christian, you're right with God. But we're in the book of Romans, and we're talking about how we struggle against sin and how we suffer. And so if you'll look with me in chapter 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And so for some reason, we have this erroneous idea that being a Christian is about good things all the time. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that in this world, we suffer. In fact... Parents, I know that it's our deepest desire to protect our children from suffering, but at the end of the day, you can't completely protect them from suffering. 
what you need to do is prepare them for suffering. And some of you are here this morning, and if you're not right now, you have suffered, you will suffer, or you are suffering. If you're not suffering this morning, the book of James says, if anyone's cheerful, let them sing praises. Ride that wave and rejoice. But mark this down. There are sufferings in this world, marital, parental, health sufferings, anxiety issues, depression, fears, sin struggles, job losses, disillusionment. The world is full of hurt people, and these hurt people are out often hurting other people. And so we, we, we come to this sense that, hey, okay, so life is full of suffering. What are we going to do about it? When someone says, how are you doing? We go, hanging in there, or it is what it is. Or what Paul does, and through the Holy Spirit's leading, he, he describes to us the indescribable beauty of the future. He doesn't say, hey, just do this, this, and this, and all your sufferings will go away. He says, remember this, that the sufferings you're going through right now, they don't even hold a candle to what's coming. And so he describes the indescribable beauty of the future glory that awaits us. But then he says this, the Spirit of God is helping us during that time as we suffer and struggle in this life. Our salvation has begun, but it's incomplete. And we're frustrated and sometimes we're disoriented and some of us lose hope because we forget the big picture. And so what Paul's been doing in Romans 8 is he's saying, look, even the idea of being pleasing to God, now that we're in the Spirit and the Spirit is in us, we can fulfill the law. We can, we can love God and others. We can fulfill that requirement. We're putting to death the deeds of the body. But as Paul was in 19 through 25, where we looked two weeks ago before we got snowed out, we saw that Paul's reminding us that there's going to be a future glory. But now he comes back to the present. And in verses 26 through 30 this morning, we're going to look at two things. He's giving us two great encouragements that no matter what's going on in your life, the first encouragement in verses 26 and 27 is that follows. We can be encouraged in our sufferings right now because the Holy Spirit's praying for us. And you might say, well, that, that doesn't really do much for me. Like, great, the Holy Spirit's praying for me. So let's take a look at this. Father, I pray that your word will help us to see the relevance and the encouragement in the midst of our difficulties. Many came this morning with broken hearts and burdens, and we all must face these difficult things. So encourage us through your word and unleash the, the word of God, Lord, so that it accomplishes all that you desire. We know it won't return void, your powerful word, and we know that we need to be fed and encouraged and quickened and so, Lord, not by might or power, but by your spirit, may you continue to use your word to transform your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's begin. We're going to take a look at verses 26 and 27. We can be encouraged, whatever you're going through, because the Spirit's praying for you. So Paul begins in verse 26, and he says, in the same way the Spirit also helps. Now, the fact that he's starting out with in the same way, he's gone... Don't forget, this whole chapter has been referring to the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit, he says, to help us fulfill the requirement of the law. He told us in verse 13, through the Spirit we can put to death the deeds of the body so we can overcome our sin struggles. He said in verse 16 that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So the Spirit's helping us. And he says, let me tell you another way. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now, the concept of weakness is important to understand. Like, let's just get this out on the table. Human beings are weak. 
We're creatures. There's so much in our culture that says, be strong, suck it up. We're invincible. Even as Americans, united we stand. And God says, no. We're weak. And the sooner we get on board with that, the more we're able to cooperate and understand what God wants to do in our lives. Because think about the frailties of our human condition. You know, we, we go to the gym, guys stand in the mirror, they lift weights. But put them in front of a Mack truck and it ain't going to be pretty. And it's not just our physical bodies that are weak, but our emotional constitution. We don't see the big picture. And so sometimes when Paul uses weakness, he particularly refers to our lack of spiritual insight. Like, we, we can't really see the big picture. And I'll give you an example of this. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 19, as he was trying to describe slavery to sin, he said, now I'm going to use an illustration from slavery because of the weakness of your flesh. Now, he didn't mean because you people are a bunch of cripples. He meant the weakness of your spiritual insight. And so, when I'm suffering, I, I'm, I can be disoriented. I can lose my focus. And, and I, can, I can get discouraged or I can go back to my sin. And God's going, listen, I want you to know the Spirit's helping you in this weakness. And this is an interesting word for help because it has the idea of coming to aid with someone else. It's the same word that Mary used in the gospel, or Martha used. She says, Jesus, don't you care? Tell my sister to come and help with me. And so God's going, look, you may not realize this, but while your life might feel like it's out of control, the Spirit is coming along, assisting us. And how does he do that? He says, well, here's why we need that assistance. We don't know how to pray as we should. That's a remarkable thought. We don't know how to pray as we should. He's not saying, I don't know how to say, dear God. But, but sometimes we don't, it's more the content of what should I be asking here? I don't even know what to say, God. I mean, I know what I normally do when I'm suffering. Get me out of it now. Either get me out of it or get it out of me or get me away from it. And sometimes that's not the right thing to pray. In fact, sometimes it's a good thing that God doesn't give us what we pray. I learned this a few years ago when my kids moved to Arizona. My daughter and my grandkids, my heart ached to be beside them. You know rule number one, never follow your kids, right? But the aching of my heart and some circumstances caused me to pray, Lord, oh, Lord, could I be beside them? Good thing God didn't answer that prayer because now I'd be down there and they're back here. <laughs> and I'd be holding the bag. What just happened? Martin Luther once said this. He said, it's not a bad thing, but actually a good sign if the opposite of what we pray for appears to happen. And he said, and it's not always a good sign if what we pray for always is fulfilled. Because God's will far excels our counsel and our will. So, sometimes we don't know what to pray. God, my kid, my spouse, my job, my health. I don't know what to pray. And he says, but the Spirit himself... He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this word intercede means to come on behalf of another person. Okay, now, but, but I like this phrase, with groanings, because I never thought about this before, but the Holy Spirit, because he's the third person of the Trinity, we know he has feelings, right? But the only time I ever talked about his feelings was the Bible says that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. But this word groanings, literally means to, to involuntarily express great concern, to sigh. 
right? Give you an illustration. Your kid is up in the bottom of the ninth. I know it's a t-ball game, but it's still important, right? <laughs> bottom of the ninth, base is loaded, right? All the parents are like, Billy, Billy, and Billy strikes out. And you go, ah, oh, why? You're not in pain, but because of your love, you have this involuntary expression of groaning in your soul because you empathize with their pain. What a cool thought that as I'm struggling, the Holy Spirit, he sighs, not for himself, but for me. And then as he sighs, his groanings are too deep for words, but his thoughts toward God are directed in prayer for us. It's a wonderful thought that in the midst of my pain, now, when it says too deep for words, it's really just one word in the original. It, it means unexpressed or wordless. So I don't think here, some people think this is talking about when you speak in tongues, you're groaning in tongues to God. And I'm going, I don't think so here for two reasons. Number one, that would mean only certain people can get this because 1 Corinthians 12 says not everyone speaks in tongues. But secondly, it says, it literally means wordless. Now, whatever you do with tongues, they're still words. They're not wordless. So it's just a, a wordless, sighing prayer that the Holy Spirit offers up. And then it says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Now, I find that interesting because God could have just said this. He could have said, the Spirit's praying for you and God knows what the Spirit prayed. But listen to what it says about God. It says, he who searches the hearts. That, that's a theme throughout the Bible. That the living God is constantly looking down upon humanity. And he has a focus that's deeper than just what we're doing on the outside. But he searches our hearts. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the all, all the earth. God, God, God sees beneath the surface. Hebrews chapter 4 says, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of God with whom we have to do. Now, now that's kind of like, what do I do with that? That can be like a two-edged sword. On the one hand, that could be comforting, right? Like, oh, God, nobody knows, but you know. No one understands, but you know, God, you know my heart. On the other hand, it could also be concerning. God, you know my heart. You know, you know my motives. Everybody else might think I'm a dandy guy or girl, but you know what's going on on the inside. And that's why the Bible tells us to examine ourselves regularly, to, to pay careful attention to our hearts and to pray to God to search me, O oh God, and know my heart. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, God is, is constantly... Now, he, he, this is not designed to terrify you, but to keep us on check and to say, bring your sins before the Lord and ask forgiveness. And when you find motives that aren't pure, ask God for your help. And when you're struggling, know that God is searching our hearts and he knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Now, the word mind there is not like his brain, but this word literally means his, his mindset, his way of thinking his intentions and aims. So, so God's saying, look, I know you're having a hard time, but my spirit, he's praying for you with these sighs. And, and, and God knows what his intentions and his mindset are. He knows what the spirit's frame of reference is. And, and of course, that's because they're eternally related. It's like my wife and I, a while back, we were playing. There's so many games that are like giving clues to one another, and then, you know, you guess it, right? Like taboo. So my wife and I were playing, my son and, and his girlfriend, right? And we're slaughtering them. 
And, and it's easy. Here's why. Not because we're smarter, but because we got 30 years of, of relationship. So all I got to do, it's, it's the kind of coffee we drank when we were in Austria. Boop! You know? So, so because we know one another's mindset from time together. God knows the mind, the intentions, the frame of reference of the Holy Spirit. So he's not like, what? What, what are you trying to say, Holy Spirit? There's this great connection. So, so as the Spirit directs these prayers to God, it says God knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints. So, so I'm going, I don't know what to pray. But then it says he intercedes. And what that means is that he himself, he comes to God and makes a request through contact. So he takes my prayers to God and he says, God, this is what they really need. And I'm down here going, God, this is, what I, this is what I want, or this is what I hope you'll do, and the Spirit's going to do it. This is what they need. Now, interestingly, in the text, the, the original language just says he intercedes according to God. And I'm going, huh? What's that mean? He prays for me according to God. Don't worry about it. He's praying according to God. So I think, I think the translators, most translations add this phrase, and I think this is good. He intercedes according to the will of God. Now, this idea of the will of God ought to be something that you and I think about. If you're a Christian, you should be thinking about the will of God. Like, wonder what God wants me to do in this situation. I wonder if God doesn't want me to be doing this anymore, or if I should start doing this because this is the will of God. Here's a scary thought. If throughout the weeks of your life, you never think about the will of God I want to give you a sober warning. Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of God, those who do the will of my Father. Now, it's not like we suddenly try to go, I'm going to do the will of God. When you become a Christian, God changes your heart, and the Spirit of God begins to create within us an interest and desire in the will of God. And yeah, we drop the ball and we fumble around, but, but at the end of the day, we have... As um, Thomas Schreiner said, an inexpressible longing arises in our hearts to know and do the will of God. I mean, that's just Christianity 101. The Spirit gives me a desire to do the will of God, okay? But in the midst of me struggling around, I'm encouraged to know that God is still able to accomplish His will because the Spirit of God is praying for me according to the will of God. Now, just as a side note, Paul's going to later add that Jesus also prays for us. Look down in verse 34. It says, Jesus was died and rose, and he's at the right hand of God. So Douglas Moose said something I thought was cool. He said, you know, there's a little distinction between what the Spirit prays and what Jesus prays. They're both praying for us. But when the Bible speaks of Jesus interceding, it usually is more of a reference to him at the right hand of God representing us and sustaining our salvation. Satan is accusing us. But Jesus intercedes and he's able to save us forever. So Moose says, the one in heaven, the son of God, intercedes defending us from charges that are brought against us. He guarantees our salvation in the day of judgment. But the Holy Spirit, he's in our heart and he's praying us through the difficulties and uncertainties of life on earth. So, okay. First thing we learned today is, hey, as a Christian, I can be encouraged because I might feel like, man, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm messing up. And God's going, listen, I'm praying for you. I got this. You're secure and you should be encouraged because I'm accomplishing my will in your life. But the key theme is, he says, we don't know how to pray. 
But now in verse 28, he's going to say, but I'll tell you one thing we do know. And that's the second thing God wants you and me to learn this morning. We don't know how to pray, but we could be encouraged because the Spirit's praying. But one thing we do know, and this is really encouraging, we do know this. We know that in our sufferings, we can be encouraged because of God's promises and his purpose, okay? Now, some of you may have not yet learned how to find comfort and encouragement in God's promises, but this is a really important part of being a Christian. God's promises are precious and magnificent. Picture a basket full of delicious fruit, okay? But unless you, you claim and embrace those promises by faith, they will not benefit you. The author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.2, the word preached did not, did not benefit those in Israel because it was not mixed with faith, right? So God makes these promises to you and me, but, but, but our response is to, is to pull them out of the basket and Velcro them to our souls and say, okay, I believe that. I'm not going to go by how I feel. I'm not going to go by how my circumstances look. I have this precious promise from God, and these promises relate to his big purpose. So God goes, listen, this morning, you might be like feeling out of control, but let me remind you of my promises and my purpose. So let's look at them. Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, that's a great promise. We don't know how to pray, but God is causing, literally, it says, all things work together for good, okay? So the word working together has the idea of, of let me find it here. Oh, wrong page, here we go. It literally means to engage in cooperative behavior, Okay? So something bad happens in my life. Okay, that wasn't an accident. God permitted it. And, and, and Satan might say, I want to ruin him. And God's going, uh-uh. Because that has to work in behalf, in cooperative behalf with every other circumstance. I got this whole thing. So nothing comes into my life by accident. Oh, why, why did you let me get abused? God's going, oh, I missed that one. I, don't, I, can't, say, I can't say, oh, he, he, he did that on purpose. But everything that happens in our lives... He orchestrates it and causes it to work together for good. And this doesn't mean that the good will always be recognized in this life. Like I can't go, oh, well, this happened because this is why. I just have to take that promise and say, all right, it looks very ugly to me. It's kind of like a little girl once looked up into heaven. She goes, mother, look at those beautiful stars. Heaven must be so beautiful. And she said, honey, that's only the backside of heaven. The other side is more beautiful. It's kind of like my wife used to do a lot of needlepoint. Now, super needlepoint is when you can do needlepoint, and on both sides there's a beautiful picture. But normal needlepoint on the other side ain't so pretty, right? So if you're looking at, at the, the back of a needlepoint, you see knots and, and messes and doesn't make any sense. And, you know, you're trying to be encouraging. Oh, honey, that's, um, hmm, that's interesting, Right? But then she flips it over and you see the picture. And so from my perspective, I might be going, God, I have no idea what you're doing in my life. I see knots and messes. And God goes, yeah, but I'm making all things beautiful in my time. I'm causing it to work together for good. Will you trust me in this? 
And then it sort of gets squirrely because it says, he causes them to work together for good to those who love God. And then you're like, oh, so see, this is only for some Christians. Dang, I'm not really real happy with God because he's really messed up my life. So I don't even get these promises. Can I assure you right now that that phrase, those who love God, is all inclusive. That's a verse that basically is just another way of saying everyone who's a Christian. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul said, anybody who doesn't love Jesus, let him be accursed. It's just all Christians are those who love God. Now, does that mean that I effuse with bursting affections for him every moment? Of course not. Right? If, 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 you, if you only measure love by that way, your marriage is going to be in trouble, right? You can be mad at someone, but, but you still love them, right? Now, so, so when the Bible speaks of those who love God, the thing that's important is to understand here that that is not based on our initiative, right? We're not having a rally here where I'm going, come on, guys, let's go out there and love God. Loving God is absolutely a reaction and a response to his love, right? In fact, this is how Paul qualifies those who love God. Those who love God, that is, those who are called according to his purpose. So loving God is always a secondary response to his initiating love for you. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. So if sometimes you're going, I don't feel much love for God, stop focusing on how you feel toward him and start focusing on how he feels toward you. And if you're not sure, don't go by your circumstances. If you love me, I get a new job. Look at Calvary and ask Jesus, how much do you love me? And he'll go, this much. God loved us so much that he sent his son and Jesus shed his blood willingly to die so that I don't have to go to hell and to give me life and have a relationship with me. So I go, okay. So God's working everything to good to those who are Christians. And we become Christians because he initiated it. He called us. Now we're going to learn in the next verse that calling is this effective work that God does. I became a Christian not because I chose to, only of my own initiative, but I chose to because he called me. And then he says, we're called according to his purpose. So again, whatever's going on in my life, I can be encouraged as a Christian because God's orchestrating it for his good purpose. Now, what is his purpose? Well, Paul's going to develop that. He's going to show us that God's ultimate purpose in verse 29 is to conform us to the image of Jesus. Those whom he foreknow we predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, this is important. Whoever told you that God's goal in your life is your happiness, it's wrong. I've had people say to me, God doesn't want me to be unhappy in my marriage. And I'm going, really? Remind me which verse says that. Or how about this? God doesn't want me to be unhappy. I go, really? Hmm. I'm not sure where you got that. There will be times where we will be unhappy. Because God's greatest goal is not my happiness, it's my holiness. It's that I become conformed to the image of Jesus. But as I am becoming conformed to the image of Jesus, ultimately, my holiness will lead to eternal happiness. And so if I can say, okay, God's goal then is to transform me into the image of Jesus. He's not so even concerned about what I do, but who I am. And as I look to the gospel, the Bible says I'm being transformed into the image of Jesus. Before Adam sinned, he was created in the image of God, and he was a, a small reflection of Jesus. But then when he sinned, the image of God was twisted and marred. But when we become a Christian, the Bible says we are now being renewed into the image of Christ. And, and that will culminate when Jesus comes back and he 
changes me into his image completely. So this passage has been called by theologians the golden chain. They're linked together. One thing leads to another. So let's look at how God's purposes unfold. He says in verse 29, listen, here's why we can be encouraged. Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now some of you are going to go, oh, I don't, like, I, don't believe I'm, I don't believe in predestination. Please don't ever say that. How can you not believe in predestination? It says he predestined you. I know what you mean by that. Some people have a certain view of what it means to be predestined. Okay? Some people believe that God just predestined us because he knew you were going to pick him. Okay? In other words, he looked into the future and he knew that you were going to believe in him. He foreknew you. And so he said, because, uh, use this, some of you, this, like I don't know what he's talking about, romper room. Anybody remember romper room? Okay, us old people. She would look through this thing and say, I see Billy and Tommy and all the bitter kids. are like, she never called my name. All right, I get it, right? God does not look into the future and pick those who are going to pick him. But I understand why people believe that, because it says, those whom he foreknew, that's who he predestined. And sometimes that word can mean just to know beforehand. It's used six times in the New Testament. But four of those six times, it's not talking about this passive, like, I just saw what's going to happen. It's a very active word, okay? And you can look this up in Greek dictionaries. The word itself doesn't just mean to see what's going to happen. But rather, it has the idea of, a, of an active choosing on God's part. It has the idea of entering into a relationship. It relates to the Old Testament word to know. Okay, I'll give you an example. In Amos chapter 3, in verse 2, God said this. And this is speaking about the, the nation of Israel. He said, you Israel only I have known of all the families of the earth. Now think about that. There's all these nations on the earth. And God goes, Israel, you're the only one I know. And you're like, really? He doesn't know about the Hittites and the Parasites and, and the Amorites. He doesn't. No. Clearly there, when God says, I know you, Israel, it means to choose. And that's why the newer translations, NIV, New American Standard, ESV, they go, Israel, I have chosen you. So the idea of of, of an active knowing is, is a foresight that's more than just like, I know you're going to pick me, so I pick you. But rather, it has the idea of, of God choosing to set his love on us and enter into a relationship with him. The same word is used for God's choice of the death of Christ. It says Jesus went up to the cross by the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. So when God foreknew you, that's the idea that he... He chose to, to set his love on you. And I know you're going, well, of course he did. I mean, <laughs> smarter than the average bear here, you know. No, it's, 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 a, it's a work of grace. Now, some of you go, no, I think I chose God. I, I don't discount that you chose to be saved. But it's because he foreknew you. He chose you. You and I were dead in our sins. We were blind. We were lost. We were held captive by Satan. The Bible says no one seeks after God. We're all dead in our sins. We're unwilling and unable. We're in bondage. But God in his grace, when we were dead in our sins, he foreknew you. And he quickened you and he drew you. And the Bible's going to say he called you. Okay? And this is important to understand because it brings great comfort to say, hey, I didn't begin this process. God did. Philippians 1.6 says, he that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. 
So it's not ultimately up to you. You better have chosen him. You better hang on with all God in his mercy and grace foreknew me and he predestined me so that one day I will be the first, Jesus himself will be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, this is a cool thought. When we stand in glory, we're all going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But we're not going to be looking for Jesus. Where's Waldo? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? We all look like Jesus. Jesus. Listen, he's going to stand out supreme, the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren. But I love that verse. Many brethren. Many brethren. And that's why we have the privilege to pray and be a part of this great advancement of the gospel throughout the world, in Holland, in New York City, and in Bucks County, and in this church this morning as God is calling people to himself for his glorious purposes. And maybe he's calling you. And if you don't respond and you perish, it's not because he didn't call you. It's because you refused. It's your unbelief. No one ever goes to hell because of God's fault. God's not willing that any should perish. But in the mysteries of his plan, he says, you came to me because I called you. And notice, he says, those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Now, this is important because, listen, this call is going to accomplish a decision on your part. He doesn't go, dang, I, won't, I called you, but you wouldn't listen. There's no loss here. So this call cannot be a call that goes out to everybody. I call that lightning bug salvation. You remember Cam and Mary? Years ago, there was a scientist in the church who his business, whatever they were doing, they were paying 10 cents a lightning bug. They were doing scientific experiments on lightning bugs. 10 cents a lightning bug. So every night for the entire summer, they would go out and collect lightning bugs in their backyard, right? Now, you're going, that's silly. They paid for their vacation <laughs> on lightning bugs. You know, I can only imagine the kids are like, Mom and Dad, it's midnight. Get out there, right? <laughs> we only got 2,000 today, right? <laughs> but sometimes, you remember collecting lightning bugs. You tell your brother, I got three of them, right? And then you open up your hand and you're like, dang, there's only two. There's no lightning bugs in God's golden chain. Those who may predestiny call. Those whom he called, he justified. So if you're a believer this morning, two things are certain. One, you're justified. You're forgiven now and forever. You have already been to the judgment bar, and God has declared you forgiven and righteous. You will spend eternity with Jesus. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. What a great thought. I want to justify. Now, some of you are going, how do I know if he called me? We well, ought to be thinking about that. Bible says, make your calling sure. So you don't need to know, oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. It was March 7th. And you just need to know this, that sometime in your past, you responded to the gospel of Jesus. In repentance, faith in Jesus, you said, yes, I do believe. I do believe the gospel of Christ, that he died and rose again to be my Lord and Savior, and I'm willing to trust him and follow him. Now, some of you are going, well, I don't remember when. You don't need to know when it was. You're willing this morning to trust Jesus alone. That's the gospel. You, you forsake any other hope but Jesus himself. And you believe in him. And you're washed in his blood and you're forgiven. And if you've done that, you've been justified. But notice this. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's really cool as we wind this down is that didn't happen yet. See, this great doctrine of being glorified is in the future. That's what we're waiting for. If Jesus comes back right now, glory, glory, those who are dead in Christ will be raised from the dead and given this new 
resurrection body with flesh and bones shining with the glory of Jesus. And those of us who are still alive, the Bible says we eagerly wait for the Savior who will transform the conformity of our weak bodies into conformity with the body of His glory. Amen. We're going to be glorified. But Paul put it in the past tense. God put it in the past tense. You can't do that, can you? If something didn't happen, how can you say it like it's already done? We do that. Remember when your sister ate the last, used the end of the milk, right? You poured that bowl of cereal. She didn't tell you the milk's all gone. And you go, you finished the milk. She's going, yeah, yeah, I forgot to tell you. And you made an announcement. You're dead, right? But she was still alive, right? You were so certain that her life was about to expire that you pronounced it as though it didn't, but it's already done. Or if you're really eager to please your boss and he says, now I need you to get this project, this project, and this project done, you go, done. And he, goes, he doesn't stop you and say, no, it isn't. If it was done, we wouldn't be having this conversation because you're speaking with certainty that something in the future is going to happen, right? But we can't do that because humans, our promises fail. But when God says something's done, you can take it to the bank. What a great verse. I'm already glorified. This is why when people say to me, well, pastor, I believe you can lose your salvation. I'm going, where? Those whom he called, he justified. And it doesn't say, and um, some of them, dang, they just didn't quite cut it. Them lightning bugs were lost. Jesus said, Father, of all those whom you've given me, I lost none of them. You can take great comfort. Now, now here's the thing. If, if that makes you want to go out and go, wow, once saved, always saved. I'll do whatever I want. You probably aren't even in the chain, right? <laughs> but don't let somebody tell you that you mess up. If you commit suicide, if you do something bad, you're going to lose your salvation. You're secure because God brought you to himself. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not about us. It's about him and how I rest the songwriter said, he didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim, to let us drown. He didn't build his home in us to walk away, and he didn't lift us up to let us down. So these are such encouraging promises. The Spirit's praying for me so that God's will is going to get done, and God has promised me that I'm part of his purpose, and that everything that's happening in my life is working together. So, so whatever you're going through this morning, these sufferings are not obstacles to God's plan. They're articles being used by God to accomplish His purpose. These promises are intended to help us in our earthly journey. Paul's a realist. He knows that victory may lie years ahead from now, Douglas Moo says, and I agree with that. If you want to go to Joel Osteen's church, he'll say, you can have your best life right now. But you're not going to hear that in this church. I don't know what the Bible says. God doesn't promise you health and wealth and prosperity right now. But he does promise eternal glory. And we go, oh, God, thank you. Man, my life is out of control. But God, thank you for promising me that the good you've begun, you will finish. And the Spirit is here to comfort me in my suffering and grant me assurance and if you're unduly anxious about your relationship with the Lord, does he accept me? Yes, it is finished. And though you might not understand what he's doing right now, see the big picture. You're already glorified. And so as, as we close, I want to ask you, okay, how do I respond to that? What do I do? There's a couple things. If you're a Christian, you step back and you go, oh, 
Thank you, God. Can you do that? Just thank you, God, for this marvelous promise. And then you go, all right, I don't know why this is happening or this is happening. But whatever my lot, O God, I sing, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Can you you muster up the faith to, to sing that, to say that to God? And maybe because of the beatings that you've taken in your life, you're just like, I'm so done with God, or I'm just so out. Listen, come. Come back to Jesus. Those of you that are walking with him, hang in there. I, listen, we experience unspeakable trauma and sorrow sometimes in this world, but it's not an accident. It's purposeful, even though it's painful. And I wish I could promise you, oh, God's going to tell you why it happened right now. But what a great truth that causes me to go, because of the gospel, Lord, I, I, I will surrender and trust you. And I want to live my life and help to work the gospel constantly into one another's lives to help us to grow and become like Jesus and hang in there in the midst of unspeakable pain, knowing that it's done. God's got me in his arms. But also for some of you, God calls people to himself publicly. Jesus didn't ever say, come to me. Meet me behind the barn when no one's looking. He said, come, believe, confess me before men. So I want to do some. I don't do this all the time, but this morning as we close, just real briefly, I, from time to time, I, like to, I just felt the Lord was, was leading to do this. We're going to give a public invitation here to respond to God's calling. And let me tell you what that looks like. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. And so, so maybe you, you recently have gone, I get it. I do believe in Jesus, but I, 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 never, really, I never really just kind of came out and, and, and confessed publicly that I'm a Christ follower. So let me be really clear here. When I invite you to come, this does not make you a Christian, okay? But what it does is it gives you an opportunity to express that, yes, I do want people to know that I am responding to God's call. That yes, I want to be identified with Jesus. That I am not ashamed to say, I believe that Jesus died and rose again and that he's my Lord and Savior. So first of all, if you've already done that or if you already confessed it to others that you're a Christian, this isn't for you. You don't need to keep doing it. It won't give you some, oh, I don't know if I was sincere, but if you've never publicly just said, listen, I want to follow Christ, and I want people to know that, and I, I sense God is calling me, and I recently responded, or this morning I'm responding, then we're going to sing a song called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And as we're singing, I'm just going to ask you to come and stand with me. We had two people this morning that just came and stood. It doesn't save you, but it is a way in which you can show to yourself and testify before others that, yes, I am a Christ follower. So if, if, if God's working in your heart, you're going, what will people think? Really? Don't worry about what people will think. I can tell you what, they're going to praise God. And secondly, if you're going, well, I don't know whether I want to be a Christian. Let me just use some reasoning with you for just one second. What good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Why would you not come to Jesus and give him your life and trust him as your Lord and Savior? And if you're going to do that, no sense going undercover. Just stand out. God, God's the one working So the Holy Spirit's going to bring us. If no one comes, I'm not going to go, dang, because God's the one who calls people to himself. But he may be tugging at you to say, yes, 
And I've heard many people say, you know, before I knew it, I was walking down the aisle. I don't even God was drawing them. So let's stand or stay seated, and we're going to sing together, I have decided to follow Jesus. And don't worry about anybody beside you, whether they're going to follow. If you feel led to stand publicly and say, I have decided, you come and stand with me. Benjamin. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Let's close in prayer this morning. I'm not discouraged because one of two things is true. Everybody in here has decided already, and so you can leave with great comfort that you're called and the Spirit's praying for you. And I'm also glad that if you have not decided, that you didn't come because God looks on our heart. And walking down the aisle, that's not the main thing. But if you haven't decided to follow Jesus, please don't put your head down to rest tonight until you make that decision. Father, thank you so much. Lord, we know you love us. We know the gospel is our only hope. And we rejoice as brothers and sisters in the midst of our tears and pain, our confusion and our heartache, that all things are working together for your good, for our good, for your purpose and for your glory. And Lord, our hearts ache for that day when our troubles will be over, our sins will be behind us for good. And we will stand in glory with Jesus. But until that day, help us to grab one another by the arm and to walk together towards the kingdom of God. Help us to advance the gospel near and abroad through our prayers, through the spirit working. We pray for many more miracles in our congregation because God's power is at work in our midst. We love you, Jesus. We bless you. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.